I want to read to you a few verses then from the middle of Ephesians chapter 5. We'll just pick up from where, halfway in verse 14, Paul writes, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There's a great summons to living a life that is awake to God, aware of Him, aware of the the urgency of, of uh, turning away from everything which displeases him and living earnestly for his glory, his pleasure, which is what Paul is trying to um, summon and challenge and exhort among these believers here in Ephesus. And then he writes this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. I want to read those again because we're going to just spend our time just on these three short verses. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Today we're going to be considering um, the great challenge of how we use our time here on earth, how you use the short life that God has given you. At the outset, I want to paint something of the, the backdrop, the negative backdrop in a sense, of the possibility of wasting the time that you have on earth. And I think that there are essentially three big ways that we as Christians especially, although I think this applies to you if you're not a Christian also, but three big ways that you can lose and waste the time that God has given you on this earth. The first is just through chaotic living and the kind of self-destructive behaviors that are um, characteristic of a hedonistic age where Your life is essentially poured into behaviors and patterns that ultimately lead to your own demise and destruction in some sense. Overt sin and rebellion against God. And in a way, this is what Paul's been cautioning against in the verses that we've looked at in this chapter so far, where he particularly is focused on the danger of sexual immorality as perhaps the greatest temptation and and opportunity for a Christian to self-destruct. There's no question, is there, that we can live lives that ultimately um, disappoint even ourselves in in that particular area, as in other areas, and find ourselves um, making a mess of things. A second way, though, I think that you can live a wasted life is far more subtle. It's through the possibility of simply frittering away the days and weeks and months and years that God has given you through just shallow pursuits, pursuing comfort and accumulation and, and cheap pleasures that ultimately you're doing just to kind of comfort yourself and to find, um, you know, the kind, of, the kind of shallow pleasures in life that ultimately don't lead to much fruit with the time that you've been given on earth. And I think a third way that we can waste our time is through sheer inaction, Somebody who, in an overabundance of caution, bound up with anxieties and fears, 
may fail to use the time and talents that you've been given because, because of fear or because of an overabundance of caution. I think in a similar way, you can think about how it's the same, isn't it? The same pattern that applies to the way that you can waste money. There are people who just waste money through massive overextension of their finances, going bankrupt through, through debt and uh, just spending far too much. And it's like the person who just lives a chaotic life. There are most of us, though, if we're going to waste money, it's not going to be on the big things. It's going to be on the small things, isn't it? The frittering away, a lack of awareness of what you're doing in the day-to-day that ultimately accumulates over time with all the small spends. In the same way, a person can waste their life through just the frittering away of time and talent and resource and opportunity. And then there are those who just gather money into the bank account where it does no good to anybody, the savers who don't see any way in which this can be put to use for the the glory of God. In the same way, your life, your time, your talents can be gathered in and not extended in any way that's meaningful to this earth. And so these are various portraits of the ways that we can waste our lives. Back in the early 2000s, around 2001, 2002, the Passion Conference took place in America for young people. There were tens of thousands of people present in the open air. And John Piper preached a very famous sermon there, and uh, which later was kind of transformed into a book called Don't Waste Your Life. And I read that in the in the mid-2000s around when I turned around 20 years of age. And uh, I want to just read you a little bit of what he said in the opening comments of that sermon. He says, I know that not everybody in this crowd wants their life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you. You don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you could just have a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, a fun retirement and quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that, you'd be satisfied even without God. That is a tragedy in the making. I tell you what a tragedy is. I'll read to you from Reader's Digest what a tragedy is. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy, he said. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. I remember reading that book half a lifetime ago now for me. And it's sitting quite powerfully in my heart and helping set some of the intensity and direction and urgency of the life that I wanted to live. And I want to echo the plea that John Piper gave that day to you this morning as we consider what Paul has to say here. You have a life here to live. Please don't waste it. I want to ask you, what is the direction and priority of your life? If you were forced even now to write that down in a statement, what would you write? Have you given much consideration to how you want your life to make a difference for God? 
And can you say that you are in pursuit fully of that which is in your heart? Some of you, I think the assumption here and what Paul is writing in the verses that we read is that some of you are living foolish lives. That was his concern. He said it twice. He said, walk not as unwise, but as wise. And then a little bit further on in verse 17, he says, therefore do not be foolish. So the assumption in what Paul's saying here to these Ephesian Christians that's echoing now in our own ears and our own hearts is that it is possible for you to live a foolish life because of the decisions and choices you make about how you use the time that you've been given here on earth. I think there are a couple of kinds of fools. There are the foolish fools whose lives evidently go against God's law in ways that just lead, as I've described already, to self-destruction and chaos. People who are just a slave to their passions and their desires or who are just overtly lazy and given, given to life that's just a complete tragic waste. And the book of Proverbs describes folly in those kinds of terms that waste of potential. But there is probably more risk here that your life more resembles the wise fool, if I can use that expression. What I mean by the wise fool is somebody whose life has the veneer of wisdom and that if anyone looked at you, they'd say, well, you have got things together. You work hard. You're making smart decisions you know how to handle your finances and how to manage your time. And you've got it together. You're making progress in life. But the wise fool is somebody who, even if the veneer of their life looks wise on the surface, so that anyone could look at you and say, you've got things together. Nevertheless, the core, the heart, the foundation of life is misplaced because you lack the one thing that defines wisdom in Scripture, which is the, the intense desire to live for God, to live under the fear of God. It's the definition of wisdom in the Old Testament. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, which I take to mean living as though God is there, making every decision, living every moment, setting the trajectory of your life in the full knowledge that you'll stand before God one day. That's what it means to live in the fear of God, and that's what wisdom is in Scripture. And so you can see, can't you, that the greater risk for us being people living in a city where success is prized, where opportunities abound, where hard work is rewarded, the greatest risk for you is that you could become the wise fool who seems to have things together but fails ultimately to live a life that honors God because you're not living in the face of God. I think if there's one story in Scripture that epitomizes this above all others, it's the parable of Christ when he describes the rich fool. He tells a story of a man whose, whose land produced plentifully and he's he, he thinks about what he should do with the abundant harvest that he's reaped. And he says to himself, because he has no need for the, for the excess crop or the excess money, he says, what shall I do? I've got nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I'll store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, 
You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. He is the definition, isn't he, of the wise fool. He's a man who's made incredibly smart, savvy decisions in life and so has multiplied his possessions so that anyone could look at him and say, you, are, you have got it together. But Christ's verdict of that man is he says he's a fool because he's not living towards God. Now, if that is the risk, if that is the, the great danger that Paul has in mind, when he considers the lives of Christians redeemed from darkness, saved from a life of slavery to sin, and brought into the household of faith, the church, and made part of God's family with purpose and dignity and a calling. If the great risk is that you could live a foolish life by frittering or wasting or, 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 or preserving yourself in caution, caution, if that is the risk, I want you to hear the challenges that Paul gives to us all today. And here they are. The first is this. His first challenge is you must look at yourself and look at your life. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. He's calling for deliberate and intentional self-examination of the way that you are living your life and the things that you are in pursuit of with the time you have on earth. And he uses this word here, carefully. Look carefully how you walk. The word carefully can be translated exactly, accurately, or diligently. Exactly, accurately, diligently. It's the kind of accuracy or diligence you would expect of a, a professional accountant or a historian who takes their role seriously. In fact, it's exactly the same word that, Paul, uh, that Luke uses at the beginning of his gospel when he's addressing Theophilus, the man to whom he wrote the gospel, and he said, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He says, I followed everything carefully. In other words, I paid the most careful attention because I wanted to write a record here of the life and ministry of Jesus that contained no errors. And that same intensity that Luke applied to the task that he had of writing the gospel is the same word that Paul uses here when he says, look carefully then how you walk. You're meant as a Christian, there's a kind of spiritual duty or spiritual discipline of self-examination, not just as a one-off event, that maybe takes place at significant moments in your life, but as an ongoing process. In fact, I think it's built into the way Jesus structured the prayer that he gave us in the Lord's Prayer, that we're called to daily confession and repentance, and that's part of the process of self-examination. Now, if the call is to look carefully at ourselves, I want you just to consider some of the reasons why you might fail to do that. I think that there are all kinds of problems and challenges that accumulate to prevent us from engaging in honor, honest and accurate self-examination that leads to the kind of change that God wants to see. 
And let me just tell you a few examples of the things that came to my mind as I was reflecting on this. I think one obstacle to this kind of careful self-examination is personality. It's true that some of you are given to an overabundance of self-examination and that you are too reflective, such that you get trapped in cycles of rumination and questioning of yourself in a way that can actually lead to paralysis. I, I understand that that can be true of many. And what you need to rather hear is something of the grace of the gospel to lift you out of the despair and frustration that you have with yourself so that every day you experience new mercies. Some of you are like that. However, it's also true, isn't it, that some of you are wired in such a way that self-reflection is not really part of your daily experience. And that you're living more on the basis of intuition, perhaps following your own inner inclinations or the forces and fashions of the world around you in a quite an unthinking way. And so your life is kind of like a leaf on the breeze carried away passively or like a twig on the surface of a stream that's carried passively rather than with a deliberate intention to constantly evaluate what it is that you are doing with your time and your life and how you are serving the Lord. It's a bit, it's a bit like someone who, who, in a kind of uh, an overconfidence, decides they know their way to a destination without ever consulting a map. And there's a possibility that some of you, just through the way that you're wired, you need to hear the provocation that it is right and good and godly that you make a practice of stopping and considering. Personality can be a problem here. Another problem can be busyness and distraction. Now, I, I will grant you that there are some of you, no doubt, who, whose lives are far too full for healthy self-reflection because you literally just have too much to do. And I, I sympathize with you. I think this is especially true of young mothers and the constant demands just on cue here <laughs> as my daughter comes flying down the aisle. You can never switch off. And uh, there is not really much space or capacity in the day to evaluate your time and your life. And of course, you just need to hear the encouragement of the Lord. Keep going. So for some of you, that busyness is more... Uh, elected and self-chosen in the sense that you have thrust yourself into a life that's full of busyness and you need to really consider that. But I also just want to voice a caution here. I think that there are many of us whose lives feel busy but aren't. The reason they feel busy is because all the spare moments and gaps and nooks and crannies of your time are filled with all the entertainment that technology offers. And I think it's one of the great dangers of the modern age. It's one of the great reasons, I believe, why we're seeing such a, a, a rapid increase in people's sense of disorientation and anxiety and inability to ever settle and know themselves and know their heart and know where they're going in life because they never have space to think. Addicted as we are to, to entertainment and input and constant distraction that we never experience the space of boredom 
Increasingly, there's a view that boredom is necessary for you to kind of, for, for self-authoring of your life in the sense, if I can put it like that, at least the, the reflection that allows you to think about the grand arc of what your trajectory as well as the daily decisions and how you're spending your time. And you cannot do that kind of evaluation when there is non-stop input. You have to have space. Busyness and distraction is a problem. Of course, the scriptures call us to the discipline of solitude, which does not just mean being alone. That's part of solitude. But it's also being alone with God without all the things that intrude and interrupt into your mind and your heart. And without that, your soul shrivels. I tell you, your soul shrivels. Another reason why we may fail to engage in this self-reflection is ignorance. Some years ago, we had a house guest come and stay with us, and uh, she'd intended to come and visit just for one day over the Christmas period. But one day had led to three. She'd end up staying overnight on a couple, um, for two or three nights. And it was a rather impromptu thing. It was like, well, you've got nothing else to do. Just, just stay with us. And on the first day, she got a piece of food caught in a front tooth. And... Uh, we just didn't comment, you know, we just thought, it's a little awkward, you know, not everybody comments when you see food stuck in someone's tooth. I generally think you should. Someone did it for me last Sunday, I was very grateful for that, but, um, but we didn't. And um, so the next day, we all assumed that she'd sorted this out, and then we saw in the morning and the food was still there. It was evident that she had neither looked in the mirror nor brushed her teeth in the time in between. <laughs> And then another day passed and the food was still there. Now, I know you're wondering, why at this point did you not comment? And you know, we all have regrets in life. <laughs> Let's just, please just overlook that fact. What I'm try the reason I'm telling you this story is to, to say, listen, you, there are things about yourself you cannot know unless you look in the accurate portrayal of a mirror. And that's true in a spiritual sense. The scriptures say that God's word is a mirror. In fact, James says that a person who reads it and then forgets is like someone who looks in a mirror and then forgets what they look like. But we're called to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word. And I think not only does God, God's word act as a mirror to give you an accurate sense of how you're doing spiritually and how you're growing, but also the lives of others who are godly people and the lives that the biographies of godly men and women through the ages. All these things serve as accurate mirrors that allow you to reflect on yourself. And here's my point. There is no way that you can come to an accurate sense of who you are and how you're doing in life unless there is a mirror in front of you. Unless you're reading God's word. Unless you're paying attention to godly men and women either around you or in history. If you do not have access to these things or you're not giving yourself time to meditate upon these things, there is no way that you can engage in healthy self-reflection. Look carefully then how you walk, Paul says. We mentioned personality, busyness, ignorance was, was this one. And let me mention one last thing before we move on. Fear. Fear. Self-reflection is terrifying because it forces you to evaluate what you have done up to this point. And that may lead you to the recognition that, you have, that you've made mistakes, bad decisions, poor choices, wasted time. 
And I think genuinely many of us don't want to reflect because the idea of giving up on the things that we've invested so much time and energy into over the years is unthinkable to us. And not only are we afraid to look back, we're also afraid to look forward because the the, the call of scriptures to make decisions that lead to change is a terrifying call because you think, I cannot do it. My comfort to you, friend, is this. The gospel allows you to reflect on what has come to this point, no matter how much time and talent and resource you've wasted to now, the grace of God covers over our sin. It is never too late. And not only does the gospel allow you to look back, the gospel also empowers you to look forward, taking each day as a step of faith. I am trusting the Lord for tomorrow. Do not let fear prevent you from obeying what Paul says here. Look carefully then how you walk, even if it means making radical, life-transforming decisions. Do not let fear stop you. God has better for you when you walk in obedience to him. Look at your life. Look at it in terms of the great story of what where you are going, your destination, what, the plans that you have made. But also look at your life in the moments that make up your days. Because ultimately, the, the trajectory of your life is made up of the small decisions. The things that you are doing. The ways you are spending your time every day. Look at your life. Here's the second thing that Paul tells us to, to do. He tells us to redeem the time. Look at verse 16. He says making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. Now, what he says here makes no sense unless you acknowledge that time is finite, that it is limited, the amount of time you have on earth. If time were an unlimited resource, you would not need to make the best use of it. Think about our differing attitudes to water. If you live in a part of the world where there is an abundance of rain, we've had plenty of rain, haven't we, over the course of these last few days. If you live where there is an abundance of water, you do not give thought to whether you're using the water carefully or sparingly because you do not think of it as a finite resource. If you live in a part of the world where water is scarce, you may give thought to every single drop. And what... Paul assumes here when he says making the best use of the time is that you and I live with a healthy sense of the limitation of the time that we have here on earth. I want to get into this a little bit more in just a moment. But notice this. that The phrase that's translated making the best use of is actually the word redeem. It's the same word that's used of the way that Christ saves us. He's redeemed us. It means to buy back or to reclaim something. And you ask, well, what is it that we're meant to buy time back from? or reclaim it from, and I think the answer is partly just waste, but it's also what Paul says here, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. If you don't redeem time, there's a kind of law of entropy at work in your life where it just melts away into waste and dishonoring behaviors and ungodliness and what Paul calls evil. Redeem the time. There's an intentionality and a deliberateness to that. Redeem the time. Now, how are we called to redeem the time and prevent our days from running away from us and not using them for God's glory? I want to give you a few suggestions here. The first is that you must start at the end. 
You start with the fact that you're going to die. You start with the fact that your life is numbered. Your days are numbered by God. And you do not know how many of them there are, but you know for certain that it will end at some point. I came across a, a really wonderful story by Russell Moore, who's a, a, a Christian and um, minister in the, in the States. And he says that he was driving through a rural area of West Tennessee on his way to a small cottage in North Mississippi. And he was going there to write for a couple of days because he had some massive life-altering decisions to take. And so he's going away into the woods. He's finding that space to go and, and, uh, and do that self-reflection I've been speaking of. But on his way there in the car, he got lost. And this was in the days before we had GPS navigation. And although he had a cell phone, the phone had no signal, he said. He was in the middle of nowhere. So he pulled into a driveway in the hope of getting out the car so that he could find signal somehow and discover where he is or, or meet someone and find directions. And as he pulled into a driveway, he discovered himself on a plot of land belonging to a church. And around him were gravestones. And as he got out of his car and he was looking for signal on his phone, he began walking around and praying. Because he thought he may as well make the use of that time and, and start praying. And then he stopped, and let me read you what he wrote. He says, I stopped and walked around that graveyard and churchyard, praying for God to grant me some wisdom and discernment about the large life decision I had in front of me. And as I wandered in front of the little Baptist church building, I was still praying. But my eyes were lazily scanning the red brick in front of me. I stopped as I read the cornerstone engraved sometime in the years before I was born. The date was there, and right beneath it, Herman Russell Moore, pastor. Remember, the man who wrote this is named Russell Moore. I stopped praying, startled. Herman Russell Moore was the name of my paternal grandfather, who died when I was five years old. And my grandfather was a pastor serving many churches in Mississippi and Tennessee. When my phone finally had cell service, my first call was not to my office, but to my grandmother. I gave her the name of the church and asked if she'd ever heard of it. Of course, she said. Your grandfather was pastor there. And he goes on to describe how that moment gave him a sense of perspective on the fact that he had sought time alone with God to make massive decisions. It gave him the perspective of the shortness of life, the brevity of life, the reality of death as a massive influence on the way that we make decisions in the present. And it seems to me, friends, that that is where you have to begin. If the calling is to redeem the time, you have to start at the end. Let me read you a couple of verses along this vein. Psalm 103. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. Or hear these words in James chapter 4. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I don't think it's possible to live a godly, healthy, spiritually healthy life 
without a strong awareness of death. I don't think it's possible to make good decisions in the present without a sense of the limitation, the finitude of your time here on earth, that you are redeeming the time because it is not unlimited. You start at the end. The next suggestion here is then that you must live life backwards from there. It's the title of a book by a pastor in Scotland, and he was writing about the, 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 the book of Ecclesiastes, which ultimately brings us to this conclusion. Live life backwards. Start with the reality of death and old age and make decisions in the view of this. Now, the reason is this. The temptation of youth, and I know that as a church, predominantly, we, we bias towards youthfulness and being young. The temptation of youth is to put off the big decisions. To put off responsibility to put off repentance, to put off getting right with God, to put off making active strides towards the calling that God has called you to, to put off sacrifice, to put off courageous action, to put them off until a better, more opportune time when you feel more like it. In the book of Ecclesiastes, that takes us on a journey of all the vanity and emptiness of the way that you can waste your life ends with this passage. And I want to read it to you, and you need to listen carefully because this is such an interesting, powerful provocation. And I'll offer you some comment as we go because it is a difficult passage, but it's Ecclesiastes 12. He says this, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember your creator when you're young, because at some point, all your passions will wither and dry out, he says. He goes on and says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In other words, before the brightness of your younger years turns to the grayness and dimness of old age. Like the weather turns, that's how your life trends to when, you, to when you get old. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the keepers of the house is a poetic image for the arms, when the arms start to tremble, and the strong men are bent, a poetic image for the weak legs when you get old, and the grinders cease, talking about your teeth, because you lose them all, at least you did in those days, because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. In other words, your eyes stop working. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, because you're getting deaf. And the one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. You also become insomniac when you get old. You can't sleep properly. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. In other words, all your hair goes white. The grasshopper drags itself along. Have you ever seen a grasshopper with its leg damaged? What a sad creature it is, designed to bounce and spring. That's like old age, when you can no longer move with sprightliness and energy. You're like a dying grasshopper. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. And all your passions are bled from your years. You have no energy left. And he comes to a conclusion like this. He says, before the silver cord is snapped, 
or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. There's five or six different ways of saying, before you die. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you start at the end, the reality of death, and live life backwards from there and heed the caution that was written in Ecclesiastes to remember your Creator with your youth, if at all possible. My encouragement here as part of redeeming the time is then to invoke a sense of urgency now. You know that I turned 40 last week, a week ago. And it feels like a poignant moment in life because everyone, you know, the general understanding is that when you enter into your 40s or your mid-40s at least, you're kind of entering into the middle age, aren't you? Now, that may be true or it may not be true. In fact, I think even the phrase middle age is presumptuous because you do not know when the middle of your life is. I don't know that I have another year. And I think it's good and godly and right and healthy not to live with the dread of growing old, but to live with the dread of wasting the time you have now. Not living to redeem the time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That's a verse in Psalm 95. And I think the assumption when it was written was, you only have today. Today, if you hear God's voice, if you feel even the slightest hint of the challenge and the call and the summons of God to obey in that way that you have not been obeying, to turn around in, in, the, in the, that part of your life that God has been calling you to turn around, to offer yourself in that part of your life that God wants more of you, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You cannot guarantee tomorrow. And you certainly cannot guarantee that you'll hear God's voice tomorrow. Invoke urgency. Now, if Paul's told us to look carefully at our lives and redeem the time, I want to tell you the last thing that he encouraged us to do here. He tells us then to seek God's will. He says in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I think that what, what Paul's really describing here, when he says, understand what the will of the Lord is, he's, he's calling to mind the image of, of a consecrated person, somebody who is earnestly and passionately desiring to, not, to know and to obey the will of God. In the Old Testament, that was described with this word consecration, to be set apart for God and his service. There are a couple of passages that I think stand out as the spirit of what it means to be a consecrated person, to live a consecrated life. One of them comes in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24, when he is challenging the Israelites. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Either the gods that you found here in the land of Canaan, the false gods, the idols. But then he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it seems to me that that is the posture and the 
the deliberate intent of a consecrated mind and heart. You're saying to God, I'm seeking your will. I want to know it, understand it, fulfill it, and obey it with the time that I have here on earth. I'm making a choice now. I also love the, the, the vivid story of the prophet Isaiah in the moments when we, we see him receiving his call from God. And there he was in the temple fulfilling responsibilities and worshiping. And he has a vision of the Lord in majesty and grandeur. And he sees angels and taking fire from the altar. And he hears the voice of God. And God says to him, whom shall I send and who will go for us? He asks the question. The question is extended. Who's going to serve me? Who wants to live for me? Who wants to offer me their time, their talents, their energies, their life, their days? Who? Who is available? And Isaiah replies and says, here I am, send me. Were it not for that moment of consecrated desire to serve God, we wouldn't have the extraordinary book of the prophecy of Isaiah with all of its vivid depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ who would one day die on the cross for our sins. And Paul's saying to us as Christians, don't be foolish, but understand God's will. Live a consecrated life. Know what it is that you are meant to do with the time that you have here on earth. And what is the will of God? What does he want of you? Now, in a sense, you're going to spend the rest of your life discovering that. That's the joy of Christian discipleship. You will never feel like you've exhausted that, the answer to that question. But here's just a few things that God is calling you to. He wants your holiness. Since the scriptures say, you shall be holy for I am holy. Is your life marked by holiness? Understand what the will of the Lord is, Paul says. He wants your labors and energies. Remember the parable Jesus told of the servants entrusted with resources. The master who goes away and then returns to examine what they've done with the resources that he left at their disposal and how he commends those who have devoted their time and energy in service and multiplying the opportunities. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. The implication, the intention of that parable is to tell us that Christ will say that word over many of you when you meet him face to face because he wants your labors and when you offer them to him, he says, well done. He wants your courage. Jesus was very clear that fear can inhibit a person from obedience. You may think of somebody who's wrapped up in fear and paralyzed in anxieties and fears as being a victim, but the Scripture says that even though that may be partially true of you, there is also responsibility on you to step out of your fear because God is real. So many verses in Scriptures more than 300 that call us not to fear. Fear not, it says in Isaiah, for I am with you. I wonder what acts of obedience and courage and sacrifice have not happened to this point simply because we are afraid. 
Understand what the will of the Lord is. The Lord loves courage because courage is an expression of trust and faith in him. A father who loves you. The Lord wants your generosity. Since Christ said it's more blessed to give than to receive. If you are in doubt about how God wants you to use both your time and your money, he wants you to be generous. He wants your purity. Since the scriptures say that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. God wants you to live a life that is set apart for him, in which you say, I will cut off from my life all, everything that, every sin that entangles, everything that, 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 that defiles, everything that makes me less useful and able to serve the Lord. I'll cut those things off from my life and I'll live a dedicated life for God. And he wants your prayers Didn't Jesus say, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret? Are you a prayerful person? Ultimately, friends, he wants your love. It's the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And if you're fulfilling this, you are redeeming the time. You are understanding what the will of the Lord is with the time that he's given you on earth. Friends, the way, the specific way in which God would speak to you is going to be unique to every one of you. I cannot possibly flesh out in more detail here in one sermon the ways that you are called to seek and understand the will of God. It's between you and him. And it's a lifelong journey, as I've said. But I want to acknowledge one thing before I close. We will all fail at this. Countless times. There may be a strong sense of yes and agreement in your heart this morning as I call you and say to you, do not waste another day. But let's acknowledge that we'll fail. We'll fail because of limited knowledge. As much as we want to understand what the will of the Lord is, you will not always know what God's will is in any and every specific decision that you're called to take. And often you'll be walking with a sense of uncertainty around the complex decisions that are involved in living a life for God. You will not always know the limitations of knowledge means that sometimes you'll make mistakes and errors. And that's okay. God's grace covers our mess. And you'll also fail because of limited desire, I think. It's possible, isn't it? to know exactly what God wants of you and then to balk at it and and hold back, to hesitate, to delay, to put off, and even to refuse at times. And all of us will do this many times in life. And this is why I believe that ultimately, when we hear a challenge like this, the urgency of the time that you have on earth, the call to redeem it and to live for God, ultimately, friend, you have to... Understand that this is why we look to Jesus. This is why we look to him as the only one who actually fulfilled God's will perfectly. Listen to what Jesus said about his own life. In John 4, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. There was a man who found the greatest satisfaction. All of us find food satisfying in a certain sense. He said, I find the greatest satisfaction every day in knowing God's will and doing it. 
Then in John chapter 5, just a chapter later, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son himself can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He is describing a life so perfectly devoted to God that every day and every moment of every day was acted in the full conscious knowledge that he was fulfilling God's will perfectly. How different to you and I. And then on the night before he was crucified, in praying to God, he says this, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Friend, the only reason that you and I have hope and the reason why we can know the grace of God is because Jesus lived perfectly and he did not waste a day. And he did not fritter away his time and his talents and his energies and his resources and he did not disobey the Father. He lived the life that he was called to live and ultimately that obedience led him to the cross where he took your sin upon himself, including the wasted hours, the wasted days, the wasted time and talents and resources. He took the sin upon himself so that he could forgive you and give you the gift of his perfect life, his righteousness, that it would be your own. So the Father would look at you and say, you have fulfilled my will, well done. And a Christian can only begin now in the light of this gospel, because it allows you to look back and say, I know that the gospel has covered my past failures. And you may be, if you're getting older in life, you may be full of despair because you think there is so much failure now, so much mistaken, bad choices, so many bad choices, so many opportunities missed, so many wasted years. But thankfully, the grace of God covers it all so that the past is his and you can leave it with him. He also gives you grace in the present to be able to start today with a fresh awareness of the mercy of God. The scriptures say that his mercies are new every morning, which means that right now, even if yesterday was a write-off, today there is fresh mercy and fresh grace. And the grace of the gospel also means that you can have power for tomorrow with the time that you have left on earth. You know, I take so much encouragement here from The story of when Jesus was dying on the cross and there was a thief to one side who said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns to that dying man and says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. The the grace of of the gospel that we discover in a father who loves us is so abundant that even if Even if your life were nearing its end, now would be the time to say, Lord, even if I only have a few breaths left, I want them to be for you. How much more if death is many years and many decades away to say, today I want to live for you, Lord, by the power of the gospel, by the power of Christ in me. I want to encourage you to bow your heads. We're going to take some moment to pray into this before we take communion. Let's bow our heads and pray.